The referendum has been held. The letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit and I'm joined here by my comrade, Brian. How you doing, Jack? Very good, very good. And comrade, I mean, we're, we're talking Russia today. Like, what's what's going on? What is going on, indeed? Um, I think it's a perfect time to talk about Russia. Certainly the government being alleged to have uh, poisoned uh, a former Russian agent uh, in the UK and the reaction to that. But then more broadly, I think we also speak to... Russia's relationship with Europe and what that looks like and whether the UK and the EU will be stronger or weaker um, as a result of Brexit in relation to Russia. And Marcel gave us a very good bluffer's guide to the Nord Stream 2, which people may have heard of, but mightn't actually understand what it is. And I actually thought that was probably the main takeaway, wasn't it? It put everything into really sharp relief, I thought. You talk about cutting diplomatic ties, getting rid of diplomats, and then on the other side, the economic realities that countries still wanted the Russian gas. So welcome onto the uh, podcast, Marcel. You're the perfect person to talk to on this, actually, as you did your master's in Oxford on Russian and Eastern European studies, as well as being a political scientist. Well, thank you very much for having me. From your own perspective, as, as someone who would be you know, very much across sort of Russia, security issues, and the geopolitics, What are the main issues between Russia and the European Union? So right now, it's basically uh, full of issues, the relationship. Obviously, Russia is an incredibly important country, and it's an an important country for the security of Europe. Uh, As you know, it's not in NATO, it's not in the European Union, but it's central to making, uh, you know, to basically securing uh, the security of the continent. Uh, There are a couple of main areas, I think, where the Russian government and many uh, European countries disagree. Um, one of them is obviously the conflict in Ukraine, which has really brought things, uh, you know, brought them out to be more heated. Uh, they also disagree over policy in Syria. Uh, there's also a very broad disagreement over the role of NATO, uh, what NATO should do, uh, what countries NATO should include, and so forth. And this really goes back a long time. So the tensions that we see now uh, might be new, but you know, it has a long history, uh, obviously, going back to the Cold War. Um, that all comes into play right now. These Russian ex-spies who, uh, who have been poisoned in the UK, how, do, how does that or does it link into these ongoing issues that you've kind of laid out for us there? Uh, Russia has elections, but they're really sham elections. There's no real choice. I mean, basically, Russians can, you know, choose between having Putin or having Putin or, you know, having Putin. <laughs> so it's the the political system of Russia is fundamentally different to that of Western liberal democracies. And essentially what you see is that uh, Russia is uh, more aggressive and is in a way revisionist. And what they're doing is they're ignoring the rules of the international order by doing things like poisoning uh, what they consider to be uh, dissidents or traitors abroad. Uh, they invade countries uh, in their neighborhood. They redraw boundaries. And of course, when it comes to Syria, uh, they are complicit in committing war crimes. 
So you have a whole host of areas in which Russia is not playing a constructive role whatsoever. And this is just one of the examples. So there's a long history of Russia doing this. It's not the first time that um, the West has accused Russia of doing this sort of thing. Uh, we know what kind of uh, you know nerve uh, agent it was. We know that it was military grade. We know that because of that, we know what type of agent it was. We do know that it essentially had to be manufactured uh, by a state uh, because it's complicated to do. Um, we know that in all likelihood, that means that it's Russia because they are the ones who came up with it. Yeah, and uh, we're we're going to play a clip actually from the BBC uh, Radio Four Today show. About 20 countries uh, could uh, do this substance, and if you are uh, looking at who is interested, it is clearly the British government, or else, I mean, British friends who could have uh, framed up the British government. Really? Do you think that is plausible, do you, that the British government actually did this themselves? I I think that is the only plausible explanation, or else, as I've said, British friends uh, who wanted to uh, create a crisis... Uh, who wanted to pump up uh, uh, confrontation and who framed uh, Bri- uh, the Brits. Uh. Is there any possibility that one of these other countries did do it? I mean, it's technically possible, isn't it? It's just not plausible. So I think that what people uh, pay too much attention to right now is the uh, interview that uh, was given by the director of Port and Downs in which he said, look, we know what nerve agent it was, but we were not asked to determine where exactly it came from. And we also did not make a determination on that yet. And some people have taken that to mean that we really don't know who did this. But that's not what that means. What that means is that, that people who are experts in this have looked at the actual nerve agent that was used, and they have determined that it is a nerve agent that was developed by Russia and yes they don't know what lab it came from exactly but that is not the task of these people so they told us what nerve agent it was and then you complement that with all of the other things that i've already mentioned like the motive like the history um, and you combine that into a picture uh, with the signals intelligence and human intelligence that the services might have and at the very least what was presented was convincing enough uh, to get all of these european countries uh, to react. And that is not that easy to do. Um, so it's just implausible for it to have been anybody else. But but that unified um, reaction with, and indeed some people have branded it solidarity with, within the member states of the European Union, not all the member states have, dis- have expelled diplomats. Yeah, that, I mean, that is correct. And yes, that is cause for concern. But obviously, the European Union is not a monolithic block, right? Within the Union, you have vastly different positions on on Russia and on how to deal with Russia. And that also makes a lot of sense, and you see it coming to the fore now. So you have some countries that are uh, very much critical of the Russian government, who favor a stronger stance in general, not just uh, when it comes to reacting to, uh, to this attack on UK soil, but also when it comes to Russian involvement, for example, uh, and the occupation of parts of Ukraine. Uh, and then you have other countries that really are, you know, almost, um, you know, friends of the Russian government and the European Union, and obviously they have reacted to this very differently. And and who would who would be among the friends of of the Russians and within the European Union? Which member states would kind of stand out within that group? 
Yeah, I think some countries are traditionally, uh, you know, like I said, very friendly. Um, you have countries like uh, Greece. You have countries like Hungary, uh, Italy, uh, Cyprus, um, and Austria, for example. So the Austrian case is actually pretty interesting. They refused to expel uh, any Russian diplomats, even though they basically said, yeah, okay, we believe this to be true, because they said that they are neutral. Uh, this is something that they have long upheld, but usually, it, you know, people take it to mean military neutrality. Now, the interesting case for Austria is, of course, that now they say they're neutral. But, you know, a couple of months earlier, they were openly calling for sanctions against uh, the Russian Federation uh, to be dropped. Right. So they're not always neutral uh, when it comes to Russia, but they're neutral when it suits them. And obviously, the coalition in Austria includes the far right party and that far right party actually has a uh, cooperation pact uh, with Vladimir Putin's party and Russia. So for some countries, it's a domestic consideration, um, you know, it's a, for domestic reasons that they are as uh, lenient on the Russian government as they are. And for other countries, it's more about economics. So that would be Italy, for example, um, is very much uh, interested in keeping Good relation a good relationship with uh, with Russia because of energy and economics and so forth and what you also have to remember is that Russia is not a first priority for a lot of European countries because for example because of their geography or because of their history so when you look at the Baltic countries and you look at Poland for example they are very very uh, strong when it comes to Russia and that's obviously because they were occupied for decades and they see an imminent threat. But when you have a country like Portugal, uh, you know, Portugal is probably more interested in North Africa, for example, and in seeing what's going on there. And then you have some countries that are sort of in the middle and it depends on the topic, on, on how they swing. So this would be something like France. This would be something like Germany. Um, and then, you know, other strong countries, for example, include the UK. You know, the UK is traditionally very tough on Russia, and it's partly because of that, you know, very strong transatlantic bond. And you, you can see that now as well. The British government have not touched the money in the London property market. They haven't gone after economic sanctions. They could be accused of just kind of going a bit of showmanship and getting rid of the diplomats. Is that a fair criticism or have they gone as far as they can go? They've definitely not gone as far as they could have could have gone. Um, and it's an absolutely fair criticism to say that what would really make an impact would be going after the money. I think there might be some efforts uh, to do that, but obviously it's infinitely more complicated uh, than expelling diplomats. Um, and you're right in saying that, you know, ultimately this is not going to, uh, you know, hurt the, the Russian government, right? So um, not in, in, not even in all of these cases does expelling really mean a uh, reduction of uh, diplomats or, you know, intelligence officers, um, actually, it, it probably will end up meaning that you essentially rotate some out and then you rotate new ones in. So that would mean that the total number of people will stay pretty much constant uh, after a while. So yes, this criticism is fair, but obviously you always have to look at what is possible, right? And given the short time frame, and given the different positions in across the European Union when it comes to the Russian government, I think this is a huge diplomatic achievement for the British government, uh, which is very rare these days. So, you know, credit where credit is due, basically. Did the, did the Russians want people to know that they did this? But were they expecting 
the response that has come from most of the Western world? So I think the first, that's a good question, but I think the first question actually is, uh, did the Russian government actually order this to happen? Or was this something that was essentially done sort of freelance uh, by people within the Russian security establishment? And I think both options are terrifying because either you have a Russian government that says, do this, assassinate our opponents using, uh, you know, military-grade nerf agent uh, on UK soil, which is scary. Or you have people within the security establishment effectively doing this without being ordered to do so because, you know, they want to basically collect brownie points uh, with people higher up. And that would indicate that the central state doesn't necessarily have complete control over the doings of its security services. So I think that is the first question. And yeah, I do believe that uh, the people who have carried this out um, do want people to know that it was Russia uh, because they want people to know that they have the reach, right? Because a lot of the people who uh, oppose the Kremlin and the Putin regime did move to the UK and did move to other parts of the West. And basically what this tells them is that nobody is safe. If you can be uh, the subject of an assassination attempt using a military-grade nerve agent, you know, broad daylight in a NATO member, uh, in a NATO member country that is also, uh, you know, armed with nuclear weapons, then where are you going to be safe realistically? And obviously, if you know that you're not going to be safe, you're going to change the way that you behave. In broad daylight, it's reminiscent of famous Trotsky murder in uh, Mexico City with an ice pick. Yeah, we've just upgraded the weapons now. <laughs> so uh, one other question, Marcel, um, and because this podcast is about Brexit, does the reaction of the EU, most of the EU member states standing in solidarity with the UK say anything about UK-EU cooperation post-Brexit? I think it does. Um, I think that actually security is one of the strong suits of the United Kingdom. Obviously, uh, the UK is, you know, you know, has a, a big army. They're very powerful, and security is one of the areas in which uh, the EU uh, does need uh, future cooperation with the UK, and that is not going to change even when the UK leaves the European Union. So there's a strong incentive for the other European countries to cooperate with the UK on that issue. At the same time, I do think that it has been much easier for May to get this coordinated response from other European countries because she's at the table, right? She has an opportunity to take an influence and to convince people because she's there and in the future she won't be. So it is going to be more difficult, but yes, it is one of the areas in which uh, the UK does actually have some leverage. But even on that, uh, I think you might remember that during the Brexit negotiations, very early on, she played that card uh, very obviously. Uh, you know, she was basically uh, implying that, you know, the EU might not be safe because uh, the UK could theoretically pull out of, of uh, you know, databases and so forth. There was also n nuclear was also mentioned because it's along with France is the only other member state with uh, nuclear capacities. Exactly. So it, it is an asset and it can be used for leverage. And in this case, I think that uh, May actually did a good job, and I say this very rarely, um, but I think the way that she has previously handled it was a bit of a blunder. Do you then think, following on from that, the EU will be weaker um, when faced with the threat of Russia? Of course, yeah, of course. I mean, the, I think the 
uh, Brexit is an absolute disaster for the UK, but uh, it's obviously also going to weaken the European Union. And that's not only because the European Union is going to, uh, you know, miss this component of, of the UK when it comes to security, but also because the UK uh, is very reliable when it comes to standing up to Russia. And that is something that cannot be said about other European countries. And you see that right now as well, actually. So when it comes to something like Nord Stream 2, uh, for example, you are in this absurd situation whereby European countries are expelling, uh, you, you know, uh, Russian intelligence officers, essentially, in order to send a sign to the Kremlin that this behavior will not be accepted. And then days later, you have the final and formal approval of uh, Nord Stream 2, which is a pipeline that will essentially increase European dependency on Russian energy. So it really is, it's not a coherent response. Um, so yes, I think the European Union will be weaker when it comes to Russia as a result of Brexit. And Marcel, just, just for people who aren't familiar with Nord Stream 2, it has been controversial, just in kind of, I suppose, layman's language. What exactly is it and why, why has it been controversial? Okay, so Russia has a, has a lot of, basically, uh, you know, gas. Okay, and uh, this gas in the past has been used not just as an economic tool, but also as a tool uh, for political pressure on countries. So what you have, for example, is that if uh, the Ukrainian government does something that the Russian government doesn't like, they just stop sending gas to Ukraine, um, you know, in the middle of winter and people can't literally cannot heat. Right. Um, and in the past, this has often been described as something of an energy weapon. Uh, that the Kremlin can deploy against its enemies. A lot of countries in the European Union are very much dependent on Russian energy, in particular gas. And critics of Nord Stream 2 have argued that uh, this pipeline, which is going to connect Russia with Germany, is going to do two things, essentially. The first thing that it will do is it will bypass uh, countries uh, like Poland, that uh, you know the Russian government would consider to be you know troublesome, and essentially it will allow the Kremlin to shut off energy to those you know troublesome transit countries, without um, actually cutting off energy to countries like Germany, right? So what that means is that it will be easier for them to do so. So that means it will be more pressure on those transit countries. That's the first thing that critics have pointed out, and the second thing that this does is that. Far from leading to a diversification of European energy supply, which is what the European countries have signed up to, it will mean that a larger share of uh, energy is going to come from Russia. And once again, that will lead to an increase in Russian leverage uh, when it comes uh, to energy. So that's another bad thing. But then the Russian government, uh, sorry, the German government essentially just says, no, look, this is a commercial project. Um, it just makes sense. Uh, and this is not about politics at all. And within Germany, it's pushed by social Democrats who are more friendly uh, towards Moscow than the mainstream right wing party, uh, the CDU of Angela Merkel would be. So, Marcel, um, I think it'd be remiss of us not to maybe delve a bit more into kind of the, the disinformation element that we spoke about earlier. Um, and we t uh, one of the potential ways in which the UK government was going to hit back against Russia was to hit down Russia today. We've seen 
allegations that the Russians were involved in the the Brexit referendum with trolls on Twitter and elsewhere. I just wonder if you could you could speak to that a bit more. And are the Russians as good at it as people make them out to be, or is it, you know, kind of liberals in the Guardian using it as an excuse to you know not look at the real problems that might be underlying the reasons behind behind Brexit? So I think. Okay, let me let me take Russia today uh, separately to to the sort of bots and uh, you know what's going on online. We we do know that uh, you know Russia and people close to Russia are using bots uh, and are using these disinformation campaigns and social media in order to try to essentially wreak havoc. And once again, they're not supportive of any particular policy. Uh, they just support things that will damage the EU, that will damage NATO, uh, and that ideally. Uh, mean that Russia it looks favorably. Now, I think it's very difficult to determine the exact extent of this. And I think in a lot of cases, that has also not been the aim of the studies that people have done on this. Um, so when it comes to you know the election of Trump or when it comes to Brexit and so forth, we don't know whether it was decisive because it's very difficult to say and we might never know. But just because... We don't know that doesn't mean that it's not an issue that we should pay attention to. So I think it is something that is very important. Now, when it comes to Cambridge Analytica, I'm going to be honest, I think it's very confusing. And at this point, I don't really know what to make of it. When it comes to Russia today, you essentially have two uh, opposing positions on this. So should you ban Russia today or should you not ban Russia today? The first position says that Russia today is not a media outlet uh, in any way, shape or form. It's not comparable to something like the BBC or to private media like CNN, for example. It's essentially a wing of you know, the Russian armed forces and they're using it in sort of a, an information war, uh, just as they might use an infantryman you know, in, in an actual battle. And because of that, you should ban Russia today because it's very damaging and so forth. That's the first position. Uh, the second position would be uh, that, yes, that is all true. Russia today is not a normal media outlet. But if you do ban Russia today, there's going to be obviously a reaction from the Russian side. And not very many people actually watch Russia today. So what you basically do is, is if you shut it down, um, you prevent, you know, a couple of people from watching Russia today, but at the same time, you provide cover for uh, basically the for Russia uh, to do the same thing to independent Western media like CNN or like the BBC, right? And you give them a major propaganda victory because first, uh, you are restricting uh, access for what they would consider to be the media, and secondly, you almost give credibility to Russia today by shutting it down. And then obviously you have, you know, you have people who are completely, you know, just off the map and they say, you know, Russia today is great and, and so forth, right? But I'm gonna discount that straight away. So I think there's merit in both of these positions um, and smart people, uh, you know, there are smart people who hold either position essentially. And uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. So uh, thanks for, for joining us. 